With Tesla Government's Knowledge Management Solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. This is part two of our discussion with retired Lieutenant General Eric Wesley. He was the keynote speaker of the 2021 CA Roundtable. This episode focuses on questions from attendees of the Roundtable. Enjoy. Morning, sir. Uh, thank you for your comments. So one thing I've noted is that China, with their Belt and Road Initiative, has signed memoranda of understanding with over a dozen countries in Europe, mostly in the East and the South, including several NATO members. And one of the areas they're investing in is ports, which is very concerning. Just want to kind of get your thoughts on what end state China is trying to achieve with this initiative and how the U.S. should respond. Over. Yeah. So, so the Belt and Road Initiative is, <laughs> we need a Belt and Road Initiative, man. You know, that, that is grand strategy. And um, so that's a fantastic um, example, Mike, and I, and I appreciate you bringing it up. I'll throw another one out there just to, to season the discussion. Um, Dan mentioned that I work for Flyer Defense, which is seeking to transition from internal combustion tactical vehicles to electric tactical vehicles. If you, if you look at the, uh, the battery um, supply chain, we, it is checkmate right now in terms of looking at the elements associated with battery construction, the building of batteries, and then sales across, across the world. Um, checkmate. Uh, what is it that the United States will do in order to counter this game of, of risk? And, and so on the first point, I, I would say that we don't have a grand strategy that's required to move the interagency across the dime in order to incentivize what we what we highlight and 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 love is our free market to enable competition in these spaces. What have we done within the interagency to incentivize a better offer to to some of these smaller nations with critical strategic parts, uh, ports? Excuse me. What? How have we incentivized economically? those companies that we have that might be able to outbid the Chinese. And frankly, you know, I, we could argue that the Chinese are not a great partner, but they are the partner that's offering the cash. Ultimately, some of these other nations would far prefer to negotiate with and, and collaborate with the United States, our partners and allies, because we're a better partner but we have to incentivize it at the interagency level. It's fundamental and it's a game of risk that, that we're having a difficult time competing in. I, Mike, did I address that appropriately? Yes, sir, thank you. Hey, uh, let's take a question then from uh, John Black. Yes, uh, again, sir, uh, thank you for your comments. My area deals a lot with uh, systems thinking, complexity, wicked problems, uncertainty. Um, one of the things in which I completely thank you for bringing out is how the space is changing over time. So my question specifically is how do we change the thinkers or do you see the need for the way we view these things since complexity by its very nature has things like emergence and, and other type of properties. And a lot of times planners, decision makers, how we look at this, we're normally not trained in such things. So how do you see that? Um, so I'm going to be candid here, and I, um, you know, I love the institution I came from, in the Army, um, but I, I think we we have some work to do 
to train strategic leaders and train strategic thinking. And, and, and I don't think as, and I'm speaking for the army institutions, we do a good job of that. Every, every institution has its essence. And, uh, you know, in the air force, it's, it's, it's airplanes and, and within airplanes, it's fighter airplanes and within fighter airplanes, it's single seat jockeys. Right. And so in the army, the essence of the army is, you know, the operational side, the, the maneuver side, within the maneuver branches, the infantry, within the infantry, you know, the Ranger Regiment and even in, in soft force. Because of that, within our institution, we breed very tactical thinking. If you even were to look at the public comments that come out of the Army today, we're talking about focusing on killer squads and platoons. Killer squads and platoons are essential building blocks for an Army but it is not going to defeat China and Russia. And so how we train our leaders to get out of the tactical space in terms of professional development and think about bigger strategic problems, learning how to frame those strategic problems so that we can apply appropriate technologies to define these things that you're talking about, these wicked problems, understanding interrelationships of, of systems and uncertainty and, and, and to train our brains to think about these, these levels of co complexity. We don't do well at that in the Army. Candidly, I don't think we do that well even at the interagency level. Why? Because in the industrial era of the last century, our policymaking process is very methodical, very sequential. And, you know, if anybody who's worked in the White House know, you know, you've got an IC and then you got a DC and then you got a PC and then you have an NSC and, and, and you could, you, you could take months to put together a policy and response. This is something that has to happen daily, every single day. And in, in, in a war room environment, I loved, uh, you know, I've never forgotten way back 1992, it was revolutionary at the time, but uh, when president Clinton was running against George Bush 41, and you recall they had uh, within the media environment, um, the war room, and, and that was revolutionary at the time, but, but what, where's our war rooms in given theaters of war to be able to rapidly look at problems every single day in a very complex fashion and have the tools to sort those out. Our army institution doesn't have a natural culture to be able to do that. We don't teach strategic thinking in an adequate way. And even within our policymaking process, were very sequential, deliberate, and industrial. So I think it's we've got a lot of professional development and training that has to change, and it starts with awareness of the environment. I didn't give you a good answer, but I, I I'm empathetic to the problem, John. And thanks for the question. Thank you, sir. Our next question is going to come from Rochelle G. Lodedra. Thank you, sir. Um, the question is: is how do we maintain the high tempo, mobility, and agility required? to be constantly selecting new targets for civil competition? How do we maintain the high tempo of monitoring targets or identifying targets? Yeah, so, so yeah, identifying, selecting, and um, also actioning upon those targets. So um, following through with, with this. Okay, yeah, let me start with my analogy that I use with the operational force. So in order to deter the nodes associated with long range precision fires that have to be taken out 
in order to maneuver rapidly to defeat a fait accompli attack within the tactical realm, you have to have a headquarters that is its sole purpose and role is on a daily basis stimulating targets in order to see them and then refining our target list. Let me, I'll ask the rhetorical question. What operational headquarters in either the South China Sea or in Europe is doing that every single day right now so that if war were to break out on, on the Ukrainian border tomorrow, we'd have a target list that we could go after immediately and take down all the keynotes. What operational headquarters is doing that? Rhetorical question, I'll let you answer that, all right? So now let's talk about the civil affairs environment. In, in our American way of war, usually what we do is we ramp up and we take that six month time I talked about and we say, okay, let's look at the key populations and, and start framing this for the commanders. We're starting to put tanks on boats and, and things like this. I'm asking the civil affairs community, and maybe you're doing it. I, did, I didn't see it the last time I was in Europe. And that is who's got the target list of all of the, of the different populations associated with the Donbass right now or any other region you wanna talk about that we are targeting now, not just targeting now, but we're targeting months ago in order to shape them to get into a place. So, so to your point, um, you have to be, I said, you have to be there to your point, tempo. We have to resource this with an operational headquarters that's doing this thing every single day, which is why, you know, one of my points, we, we, we should, that new core headquarters needs to be forward in Europe doing that every single day. We were reluctant under the last administration to think about expanding our posture in forward theaters. We know all the reasons why, but if we don't, we will continue to seed this space, this maneuver space. Okay, so, so we've got to be there. We've got to target it every day, just like operators. Second thing, and you alluded to it, um, there has to be decentralization of opportunity here and again, because of our industrial approach in the last century, because of our Western democratic societies, and because we have the high threshold for activity, because the information environment is so provocative, we don't like to decentralize those kind of tools. We don't like to allow commanders to leverage their civil affairs or their PSYOP efforts in varying communities, because then there's risk, right? There might be something that hits the news, and then, then it might get hard. You're right, it's gonna get hard. It's gonna get smash mouth ugly. But absent that, the alternative is really, really ugly. So I think the two things, you gotta be there and, and resource the operational environment to target these populations using tools that I described like POSX on a daily basis. And two is we have to change some of the regulations laws associated with your activity so that the commander has a decentralized autonomy to maneuver in that space. I'm sorry, I get a little passionate about this stuff, but I, I hope that answered the question. You, you absolutely smashed my question. Thank you for your time, sir. And our next question is from Diana Parsik. I'm speaking from my USAID role here. So also I'm a civil affairs officer. Uh, I just wanted to say, first off, thank you so much for your comments. I really appreciated, uh, especially the comments on the authoritarian uh, capitalism and um, the language uh, as it's currently shaping out in the interim national security about this countering authoritarian, countering authoritarian approach. Um, from a USAID perspective, um, we see this, this, this uh, massive problem of the global democratic backsliding issue, and we really see malign actors of, of China, uh, the PRC, and, and Kremlin working in this space. Um, some of the tactics um, that we're looking at that you mentioned, the gray zone tactics, the weaponization of markets, uh, elite capture, uh, foreign 
electoral interference, um, revisionist anti-democratic narratives, uh, the, the exploitation of censorship um, and digital authoritarianism, all of these tactics um, we are increasingly uh, viewing as encroaching on uh, the human domain. Um, but at the same time, from a USA perspective, I think that uh, the focus, the shift over the past, uh, past four years toward this near tier competition space has really kind of, um, in the interagency space, uh, lost some connective tissue. Um, we're, we're no longer fo focused on the st um, stabilization operations. Um, um, obviously, you know, we saw the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, and it, it, we just haven't had the, the, the type of connective tissue. We apologize about that. I've got a three-year-old in the background here. <laughs> um, we just haven't seen um, that type of interagency uh, engagement as we have in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, when we're looking at our, our foreign adversaries who are employing all the tools across their, their governments to get after these spaces, um, you know, the, the interagency approach, you know, is it, looking at not just USA, but USAGM and, and uh, across the whole of government. How do we, from a, U, from a CA perspective, reshape the thinking uh, for, for our leadership about the, the relevance and importance of working with the interagency? How do we rebuild some of the institutional thinking um, that we devoted and, you know, all the, all the lessons learned from, from the stabilization you know, our, our history and stabilization to apply to, to this, this new challenging problem set. Um, that's a lot there. So appreciate, appreciate no, Look, Diane, I, I really appreciate the, the question because it, it gives me some opportunity to talk about some of the implications of what I, I, I opened with and, and the role of CA. Um, so thank you for raising this question. And, and you know, the way you describe it, it, it continues to get sobering. And every night when I put my head down, I, I'm sober because we've got a long way to go here. Um, but let's talk about the interagency for a minute. Um, I, uh, there are two things that I would note that is problematic to sort of summarize what I think your frustration is in terms of the connective tissue. The first is, uh, maybe three things. The first is I, I had an opportunity to work two years in the White House um, and trying to herd the cats uh, called the interagency. And what I, what I learned, and most Army people don't realize this, is we, 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 in the army, we get really used to a homogeneous way of thinking about the world, a homogeneous way of behaving. And it's because we're raised up in this, in this common culture. And we think everybody thinks like us, but when, then, when you start to work in, at the interagency level, you realize there's a, there's a whole other set of armies out there. One call, is called the State Department. The other one's called the Justice Department. The other one's the, the IC, the Intel community. And we all think differently. And so trying to create coherent policy from multiple cultures that come together and are trying to solve a common problem, but with different backgrounds is exceedingly complex and difficult. So I commend you as, as an Army Civil Affairs officer to be participating in USAID because I think that um, I think that's helpful to try to, to cross communicate amongst cultures within our own nation. The second thing I would mention on the interagency is that I, we got really lazy um, and comfortable after the, the wall fell in the, in the early 90s. We became the preeminent hegemon, and that meant that all we had to do was protect status quo. It's affected the way we've raised up leaders within our institutions. 
but we, we really didn't have major problems to solve. And we just had to do whack-a-mole and stay on top of that, of that pinnacle that we were on. But that doesn't inculcate um, a great grand strategy, which brings me to my third point. And if, if, if I was in the interagency today, I would argue that it's fundamental because we are continuing a whack-a-mole approach to policy as problems arise, we solve problems as opposed to having a framework. And we all know that we had a great framework prior to the fall of the wall in, in, during the Cold War, and we could describe it in a number of different ways, but even across our different nations, we all knew what containment meant. Um, we don't have a common view of that today. And, you know, we talk about Graham Allison, a number of different people that have talked about grand strategy. And I don't know that there exists one. So how does the interagency come together with a common framework to solve problems absent that, that effort? The, the fourth point I would make is when we wrote MDO, one of the things that I would say publicly quite often is that very deliberately, multi-domain operations is not just an army strategy or an army concept. It's not a, just a joint concept. It's not just a whole of government, it's a whole of nation concept. And what I would have argued, obviously I'm biased because we drafted it, but if you took that thing and turned it purple, it would be sufficient to talk to the other services about how we should operate in the future operating environment. Likewise, it's gotta be taken to the interagency level. Now, whether it's MDO, call it what you want, redraft it, but there has to be a common understanding across the interagency so that we have a framework within which we can decentralize behaviors. What do I need from you, Diana? <laughs> you, we need to advocate within the interagency to come up with a common grand strategy or at least adopt an understanding of multi-domain operations or join all domain command and control, which we're talking about within the Pentagon. And um, I don't didn't adequately, I think I reinforced the problems you're talking about, but we have to bring that group, that Star Wars bar called the interagency together um, with a common framework. And we don't have that right now in my view. Thank you, sir. Do you have an idea for an upcoming podcast or know someone who may be a good person to interview? Contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com. Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team. And our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals, while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. Welcome back to the question and answer section of our discussion with Lieutenant General Eric Wesley. All right, our next question is gonna come from Pat uh, Antonini. 
You might be having comments issues, sir. You just want, to, want us to read it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, sir, how would you change the National Security Council decision-making processes and the role Congress plays in terms of notifications of major policy decisions? Yeah, so um, first of all, um, the National Security Council is a fascinating place, and it's gone through a lot of different behavior changes based on who the president is. And, I, and anybody who's studied that knows that. I think um, HR tried to inculcate or return to the National Security Council some, some deliberate process in order to create discipline. So the first thing is at the leader level, the National Security uh, Advisor has got to have a process that's organized. When, when I was in, in the Obama White House, there, were, there was an, a laborious amount of PCs, VCs, and, and NSCs that would happen on a daily basis and consume the leaders of the different uh, agencies. And those, um, those meetings oftentimes would push out you know, position papers at 2200 at night for a nine o'clock meeting. So discipline at the very tactical level um, needs to be instituted in the process. And you know, I, I respect anybody who's been there. It's very difficult and I haven't done it, but I, I, I know that's what's required. The second thing I would mention is that I think I, I strongly believe that, remember I, I, I talked about authoritarian capitalism and the freedoms that uh, those leaders have to institute policy change. Um, we in democratic Western nations believe that policy has to be vetted in, in, with a, a, a real thorough effort um, in the public sphere. And, and that just takes time. I believe that we have got to change policies and laws to decentralize policy making as I've described it. And, and to do that, you have to re you have to first have a grand strategy so that people know what the rules of the of the game are so they know what the boundaries are so so again i've mentioned this a couple of times there has to be some grand strategy that the framework within which you work and then the congress and the white house have got to change the latitude that subordinate agencies have to maneuver and that's got to be codified that's not easy in fact it's near impossible because of the information environment the way it is today and the expectations of the American people. So the start point is you've got to, we've got to describe what's on the horizon, describe what we're up against. We don't adequately spend time educating the American populace or your average voter to understand what we're up against. If you do, they will be open to policy changes in terms of latitude for uh, leaders of various agencies. And they'll understand why laws are changed in order to provide greater flexibility and maneuverability on the part of the departments. So not a great answer, but I, I think decentralization has to be enabled through policy and law change. Okay, next question is from Hugh Van Rusen. General, thank you very much for your comments. Uh, I've been listening to Civil Affairs um, Association uh, presentations oh. for a number of years, and I have to say that Yours is about the best that I've, uh, I've heard. So thank you very much for your comments. I, I, what I'd like to sort of pose as a slightly as a question, but also as, a, uh, you know, as, a, as an observation on your comments, and that's uh, when it comes to great power competition, and particularly with China, uh, and I speak from an unusual personal experience uh, as a former commander of Chinese units in Africa, 
and um, having worked with um, a number of Chinese uh, uh, diplomats and uh, military officers over the years, I, you know, we've talked a lot about what China is likely to do. And I don't disagree with anything that you've said whatsoever. I, I would highlight, however, why they're doing it. And because that becomes important when you're formulating policy and dealing with plans from the strategic down to the tactical level. So from my perspective, and it may not be right, but it's my perspective, and that's that China is all about uh, feeding the beast. Uh, they are all about getting as many resources as they can. And where that's important is that their motivation is not necessarily territorial. You can make some arguments with South China Seas, but, um, you know, in a grander sense, you know, I don't see, unless there's a, unless there becomes a, you know, a competition issue that raises for them their ability to get resources, that is the dangerous part, is, uh, is we're formulating plans in the future. We need to be very cautious about getting in front or getting in the way of their ability to feed the beast. So the rationale is not so much territorial. You know, it's certainly there's a reputational aspect. But if we understand why they're doing what they're doing, I think we'll do a better job of making policy and um, formulating our plans. Anyway, that's just a comment that uh, I thought we that might be helpful in the uh, uh, in the in the discussion. And again, thank you so much for your comments, sir. It really was uh, a great presentation. Enjoying it. Thank you, sir. Hey, Hugh. Thank you. First of all, um, I want to commend you of, of at least all the listeners I've seen so far is demonstrating the most agility as you as you're taking this session on the road. And so we talk about agility and being there. Um, God bless you, because you're demonstrating it very, very impressive. Second point I make is I'm, I am certainly not a China expert, and I should have said that up front, too. But I, I will say I totally agree with what you just said, and, and, and that is the need to feed the beast. But this is a good, it's a good point for this group, because what do we talk about? We're talking about how do we understand the interrelationship of population groups? We talked about opportunity population groups, vulnerable population groups. China is not 10 feet tall like any opponent. Um, they have a soft underbelly and they've got issues. They have challenges that, are, that make them exceedingly vulnerable, one of which you just mentioned, right? Another is their relationship with their, the, those that they enter into agreements with and foreign ports, et cetera. But this, this middle class that they've built since Deng Xiaoping's change in, in their approach to the economy has grown this middle class. I think they were 80, 88% poverty um, in 1980, and they're at 2% now. That middle class, powerful, impressive, but they're not going to be pleased if they lose that which they've recently gained in the last three decades. And they're, and they're going to continue to want to grow that. And it's almost a collision course with their party leaders. And we have to understand that. We don't want to bring it crashing down, but by the same token, it is a rheostat that we can leverage. So as a civil affairs guy, understanding that, I think you're all on it. How are we going to provide the Indo-PACOM commander with population opportunities? And that is one of them. That's the umbrella domestic issue that I think has to be leveraged. And I think you're spot on. So I agree. Next question will be from uh, Todd Fredericks. Go ahead, Todd. As a National Guard officer, I saw 
definitive lack of CA presence, especially in forward arms, forward combat arms units. So going into the country, you'd be handing combat arms units piles of cash. They didn't have any sensitivity to CA training, cultural context, any of these tools because they're shooters. And my biggest concern is, is having access in the National Guard side, not necessarily to have CA battalions, but to have CA trained officers that can embed with those forward formations on the tactical level, as well as integrate with the operational levels for National Guard combat formations. Because this becomes more and more of an issue as we go to these sort of soft conflicts that we're involved in and not having that kind of integrated education that spans the entire civil affairs spectrum. And I'm wondering what, how that advocacy occurs and how we de-silo this from the purely Army Reserve, purely active duty and get it full force and full spectrum. Thank you. Yeah, no, Todd, thank you. It's a great point. Um, what it, my very opening um, comment to this group was commenting about how fundamental um, my, my education that I got at Fort Bragg and specifically, I think it was a cross-cultural communications course that I had to go through. Here's an armor officer with a, in a functional area 39 and it opened my eyes to things, call me ethnocentric, whatever I was at the time, it opened my eyes to things that I never understood. Now, what did we do? We imported that, uh, that armor officer back into the force and later as a Lieutenant Colonel, you know, I wasn't all that in bag of chips, but I will say this, compared to my peers, I understood more things than just kinetic operation. And I think it, it helped me, at least in this space within Iraq and Afghanistan, to be more effective. So this ain't about Wesley, but what was it? What was fundamental there? It was that, I think it was a six week course I took. It would not be beyond me to suggest <clears throat> that our operational and maneuver leaders have as part of their education, this understanding of cross-cultural communication, of civil affairs, of the information environment as part of their foundational education. I agree with you. Siloing this is not going to work because it's an operator's role to integrate all the tools of the force, not just as weapon systems, but those things that are in the intangible environment like information and civil affairs. So I think it's fundamental to the professional development of maneuver officers to understand what you do. I'm not sure if I answered the question, but I concur with the concern that you had. The uh, next question is from Thane Thompson. Good morning, sir. Hey. I suspect that uh, our existing security cooperation mechanisms are the ones uh, that need to be expanded or developed to bring some of your recommendations uh, forward and make us more effective uh, in, in competition. So do you agree? And if so, could you expand on exactly how those partnering and cooperation tactics or, or the, the actual tasks uh, could be improved on? Over. Yeah, so um, uh, this is a huge space and um, I, I agree, um, short answer up front, but let's talk about some of the aspects of it. Um, the first thing I mentioned is that, um, is that you can't deter without being there. And so I, I, when Pacific Pathways was first instituted, I was all for it, but it even has to go beyond Pacific Pathways. It can't be episodic or momentary. It's gotta be thorough and comprehensive. One of the problems I think we have in the South China Sea is although China's not a great partner, they're there. And, um, and until we are there and posture in a more aggressive manner forward, that we will lack confidence in our allies and partners 
that we're going to be there for them when things go south. So presence, I think, is fundamental. Now, obviously, this is policy stuff that has implications for the Hill and for the White House, but articulating presence is, is critical. Second point I make is Todd was mentioned he's a National Guard officer. Thane, I don't know if you are or not, but um, the beauty of the Guard is their ability to partner with comprehensive thematic manner over time with common relationships that don't change every two years. And so I think this is uniquely appropriate for Compo two and three to have a fundamental role in security cooperation. And then the third thing, which has been a theme of mine throughout this is decentralization. And so much of our security cooperation to include weapon sales, frankly, is hold at a very highly centralized level. And I think we've got to look at decentralization efforts in order to enable that and assume the risk associated with it. Over. Okay, our oh. next question is from Marco Bongiani. Sir, uh, good morning. Thank you for your presentation. You know, wanted to ask, uh, you know, during the era sort of, of, of sequestration back in 2013, there was this discussion in the warfighter community about how the fiscal environment was a potential threat to readiness and future system acquisition. In the COVID-19 environment, we've seen you know, large amounts of debt, again, also be assumed by, by our government. Is an unforeseen potential future crisis, fiscal crisis, you know, a threat to our ability to implement the changes you've noted uh, in, in this smash mouth sort of competition environment? And if so, does the warfighter community have a realistic path to mitigate this risk at all? Over. Anybody that studies this should be very, very sober by the horizon and the resources we have to correct the pathway of the horizon. So I think sequestration, COVID, <clears throat> the social issues that we get consumed with that distract us, and uh, I think a naive culture that doesn't understand what we're up against, which will make it a lot harder to generate the resources necessary on behalf of DOD is extremely problematic. And I respect the senior leadership of the Army of the math problem that they've got to solve. However, um, although you know, it's part of the reason why MDO expands the competition space and seeks to defeat a fait accompli attack, because a protracted conflict is not is just unthinkable in terms of the resources required. So there are things that we can do with the resources we have that will mitigate, to use your word. I would hypothesize that it doesn't cost more money to deploy forward posture forward as opposed to running rotational troops through, um, through deployments in both theaters. Now, it depends on how we do the math and how we can count the dollars, et cetera. But the cost, both to impact readiness and the literal cost of doing rotational forces, I think um, argues for posturing vice rotational troops, uh, troop engagements. Um, the second thing is policy change costs no money. So decentralizing authority and latitude for commanders to get into this smash mouth engagement that I talk about doesn't cost money. It, it costs risk. It, it, take, you know, it makes us feel uncomfortable. It's unattractive. And you have to uh, deal with the daily information environment problems that arise. But unless you're postured and you have the ability to compete in the information environment, also the targeting environment, um, you, you won't be able to mitigate and, and therefore deter. But I think those are relatively um, low cost things that I just mentioned that help you mitigate 
and avoid the, a protracted situation. And so the, these, the expanded competition space and defeat a fate complete attack are not exceedingly expensive relative to what we're signing up for if we find ourselves with the only the, the two options I described, do nothing or protracted conflict. I hope that made sense. Yes, sir. Thank you. Okay, the next question will be from Anthony Curry. Uh, good afternoon here from uh, Greater London. My question is, as you say, you may have seen, I have some direct knowledge of Russia, and I'm, this is probably for my own work, is what is the U.S. military or U.S. government's methodology for Russian influence to try and give around a different message? I, I know what we in here in Britain or not and generally what we're trying to do, but in general, what is the American military's direction? What's their direction to get around the Kremlin and try and show the Russian people who obviously are not all thinking like the Kremlin is, there is a different way to think and try and influence around the side. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, I want to be careful not to touch on the current operational stuff that's, you know, that, that's sensitive. And also the fact that I've been, I've been out uh, from classified briefings for the last nine months and et cetera. So just be cognizant of that. But, but let me speak about it generally. I think that if I were to be candid, I think that in, under the last administration, due to the sensitivity of the whole Russia problem, there wasn't sufficient um, messaging that was on the aggressive scale that I'm describing in order to touch on the influencing that you're talking about, Anthony. I would argue that it has to be a lot more active and we need to free up the commanders in Europe to be able to engage on that front much more boldly. And, and I think to a degree that's been loosened a little bit. Second point I'd make is, and it uniquely addressed this group, this population group of civil affairs. Russia, like I said, and we all know, has perfected this space, this gray zone space in terms of leveraging population groups. And I'm not convinced that we are targeting those population groups adequately. When we see a demonstration, for example, just to take it out of the current environment, in Tallinn, Estonia, about oppressed ethnic Russians, and we see uh, some kind of constancy of that, open your eyes and, and be very, very wary of what is going to follow that. So if that truism, if I just make the, made a link there, of demonstrations of ethnic Russians who are oppressed in Tallinn, Estonia, were to become a reality, what are we doing to target those different ethnic groups? One of the problems that we've you know, since the um, Westphalian era, we have abided by the role of the, the, the embassies' influence of carrying out policy of the sovereign in various nations. So if I'm an A-team from special forces, or if I'm a civil affairs team, and I'm trying to target a population group in a given, the, the, the industrial process that I've got to go through in order to get a given country's ambassador to approve my messaging has become, it's, it's just, it's laborious, right? And so how do we get, allow, again, grand strategy, regional ambassadors might be an approach so that we can every day be able to um, touch on these population groups that Russia feels comfortable leveraging on a daily basis. I didn't answer your question, Anthony, you asked about what the US message is and I would leave that to the active duty team. But um, I think that whatever that is, it's not sufficiently aggressive enough over. Thank you, sir. And we'll uh, take our 
Final question then from Chris Holchuk. Go ahead, Chris. General Wesley, uh, thank you, sir, for, and I will echo Hugh's comments, uh, a really rich discussion. I've been taking notes like mad, and I, I think we'll write something on that, uh, not only in the roundtable report, but much more extensively in the Unomia Journal. Hey, Chris, when you, when you consider the value of your notes there, consider what you paid for it. <laughs> okay. You got it free, so I can't tell you it's got value, but go ahead, sorry. Look, uh, sir, um, I'm, I'm going to kind of get to a question that I uh, kind of asked through Dan, and I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at our uh, AUSA Spotlight paper uh, that talked about MDO and the moral, moral competition. Um, and what we basically kind of asked there is a question I want to ask you to uh, uh, respond to today, and that is, you know, one of, the, one of the things that General Hooper talked about where CA really fits in competition is the uh, national strategy or national, national defense and national security strategy uh, uh, objective of strengthening alliances and attracting new partners. So in your version of the, that version of your smash mouth engagement, um, my question is this, is the army optimally structured for success in competition as it has been in major combat operations. I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I think we need to finally take a look at the capabilities for what you're calling smash mouth posturing or smash mouth engagement and saying, are they as well integrated at the institutional level so we can maximize that integration at the operation level? Over to you, sir. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna answer, but I want you to come back at me if I don't answer correctly, because this is a really, I think a, a very important question um, if you saw in the chief's paper, he talked about the aim point force and, and the pathway that we are working on to build the, the necessary structure to, to carry out MDO. Um, one of the areas that I think is not adequately emphasized right now is the importance of building out echelons. Again, we got lazy after the wall fell and particularly you know, in the two fights in Afghanistan and Iraq, when we went to modularity, we didn't actually complete modu a modular army. We stopped at the at pretty much at the brigade level and used the resources at the higher echelons in order to afford what we were doing. It was understandable at the time, and brigades were sufficient. You could, didn't need anything other than a brigade, given the competitors that we were dealing with at the time. But in the in the China and Russia fight, if we don't have capacity at every echelon that's fully integrated in terms of their targeting, not just kinetic targeting, targeting but information and civil affairs and engagement targeting, um, we've got major problems. So the idea that squads and platoons, like I said, are going to carry the day with Russia and China doesn't work. You have to be able to enable at every echelon a coherent fight that is that it has synergy, not necessarily synchronization, but synergy. And so therefore, we have to build out this capacity at every level. But you asked about institutional integration, and that implies uh, Title 10 integration. So I'm not, I don't know that I understand it enough, but if you're talking about preparation for readiness in the day-to-day -day operational environment for training, I would again argue that it's inadequately integrated, civil affairs. Now, part of the problem is it's really difficult to replicate the challenges the civil affairs community deals with in a conventional fight. And so how do you replicate that at a CTC rotation? I don't think it's adequately um, integrated. Sometimes the first time a commander sees a CA officer, 
is when they deploy to the theater of war or a rotational engagement. And so those tend to be episodic engagements and that it's gotta be coherent. If you're gonna compete and if competition is so fundamental to avoid, to, to force a recalculus of your peers, then you've got to do it effectively and it's got to be done within the institutional and the deployed environment. Did I answer that, Chris? So I think you did a, a good job of responding to it. I, I would commend to you what we proposed and that is taking a look at MDO and not just, if you look at the domains, they're largely kinetic, they're largely physical. We're talking about the moral spaces. I'm an old cavalry guy like you. And when I transitioned to civil affairs, I understood civil affairs as basically for two things that you do in cavalry. One is reconnaissance. So we're just rec we're doing rec reconnaissance on the, the civil population and everything that goes with that, the human domain, the human terrain, whatever. But the other is that we are maneuver capability. We maneuver in those spaces. And the army doesn't see us that way. The army sees us as an enabler, as a force multiplier. And unfortunately, until you take these capabilities. So we may, first of all, we need to probably take a look at the domains and finally settle on something that we can call the human domain or whatever. Information I don't think is, is quite adequate, but we've got to understand there's a physical and a, and a moral space. They're almost co-equal. And then if we understand that, then we can get a better idea of what are the capabilities that fit there, like CA, like PSYOP, like IW, et cetera, et cetera, cyber, all this other stuff, because that's basically shaping people's minds. And it's like General Mattis used to say, the critical, the critical terrain is the, the six inches between your left and your right ear. And how do we organize, train, equip, just like you do infantry, armor, all the maneuver elements, fires, all this, we need to raise it to the same level and manage it at the institutional level just like that so we can not only employ them better for the competition uh, uh, fight, but integrate them with all the other capability. Yeah. So Chris, spot on, and thank you for challenging me back and reorienting what you're really saying, because you, you are absolutely spot on. And, and let, me, let me say it this way. When we first published MDO, we were criticized, as you know, that it was a little too kinetic, right? Um, even though we thought it was pretty progressive because we put a, pulled ourselves left of, of LD and, and talked about the competition space. But there was a lot of talk that it was too kinetic. Correct criticism. And I think what I felt like one of our failures was is we didn't adequately describe what we mean by competition. And I addressed that up front. And what I wanted my team to do, and I think I, I would commend the civil affairs community, maybe this is my fifth point for the civil affairs community, is to develop the storyboard or the storyline for what we mean by competition. And that, what that does for you, Chris, is it takes the civil affairs community in the space that you guys will be highly active in and fundamental in terms of the outcome. If you can help the maneuverers understand what competition truly is, and show the, the, the tools that are available and maybe even some vignettes that describe how an active civil affairs community participates in what we're now defining finally as competition. I think then you, the, the maneuvers, will, their eyes will open and they'll start to see it. And because I wanted something before I left, I wanted some, some imagery that people could see how important this space is and our role in it. And I would say that you probably, you, Chris, you, the community are the best people to best describe that 
And I think the maneuver commanders, General McKean down at FCC, would leap at the opportunity to be able to better describe competition and your role in it. Gauntlet drop and, and General, we'll pick it up, sir. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, General Wesley, uh, really appreciate your time, of course. Tied into NBL, great comment. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. And I'm sorry I went a little bit over time, but it's been a joy sharing with you. And if you ever need anything, please reach out. I'd love to help you out. So thank you. The Civil Affairs Association is calling for papers. As a green force that operates in gray zones, how should civil affairs understand competition? How would a global civil military network be a geostrategic game changer in the struggle with authoritarian powers for global dominance? To address these questions, the Civil Affairs Association and its partners invite civil military professionals to send original papers by the deadline of September 3. The top five papers will appear in the 2021-22 Civil Affairs Issue Papers, and authors will present them virtually at the CA Symposium this fall. The top three papers, as determined by symposium participants, will receive cash prizes. For more information, visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. In civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla Government's Knowledge Management Solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com.